Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Chris Bernhardt, author of Quantum Computing for Everyone. This is a book that involves a lot of mathematics, but most of it is accessible to anyone who survived high school algebra. Even a math phobic can read the book, skip the math, and then more than hold his or her own in any but the highest level discussion of quantum computing. For those of us who love math, the underlying math is elegantly simple and beautifully presented, and the same can be said of the non-mathematical material. Chris, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for, for inviting me, Jim. Chris, what motivated you to write this book? Well, quantum computing is full of sort of fascinating, surprising, and uh, unintuitive uh, results. So it's, it's a very interesting subject. And what I wanted to do was to make this accessible to as wide an audience as possible by making the uh, the mathematics as simple as possible. So, I mean, I feel that I've stripped the mathematics right down to its essence and that now anyone who's you know, comfortable with high school algebra and comfortable following along uh, examples in the book should be able to understand what's going on. So um, I'm really trying to make this you know, fascinating subject accessible to a wide audience. I certainly think you expanded the audience. There's no question about that. And I really enjoyed reading the book. And as I say, I recommend that people read it, even if they aren't familiar with or comfortable with the math, because it gives a really nice outline of quantum computing. Oh, thank you. Okay. What is the difference between a bit and a qubit? So I think most people are familiar with bits. They're either just zero or one. And so I mean, they're very simple things. There's not much two bits, just zero or one. And they're often represented by switches in the on or off position. Um, qubits are, of course, the fundamental unit in quantum computing. And there's two things to remember here. One is that when we actually do the computation, we'll be manipulating qubits. But at the end, we want an answer. So at the end, we have to read out an answer. And we make a measurement on our qubits. And at this point, the measurement we read off bits. So the final answer is in bits. It's in zeros and ones, so much like this classical computation. Now, there are two fundamental qubits. There's the zero qubit and the one qubit. If you measure the zero qubit, unsurprisingly, you get a zero as a bit coming out. If you measure a one qubit, um, again, you get one as the... Uh, the outcome of the measurement, one is the bit. But with qubits, we can put them in a superposition of zeros and ones. So this is a mixture of the zero qubit and a mixture of the one qubit. So here, um, often we say something like A times the zero qubit plus B times the one qubit. It's a mixture of the two qubits. And these two numbers, A and B, remember it's A times the zero qubit and B times the one qubit, have to satisfy this condition that a squared plus b squared equals 1. Now, if we were to measure that qubit, it suddenly jumps to either the 0 qubit and we read off a 0, or it jumps to a 1 qubit and we read off a 1. And the probability it jumps to 0 is given by a squared, and the probability it jumps to 1 is given by b squared. So, um, this is something that's important to remember, that at the end here, we're only getting zeros and ones out of it. And if we measure a qubit that's in a superposition of states, um, it's going to jump to either zero or one, and we're going to get a zero or one out as the, as the final result. You know, I think you hit on one of the most fascinating aspects of quantum mechanics, the fact that measurements affect outcomes. And under what circumstances do measurements affect outcomes? So, so here, well, when measuring a qubit, I mean, the measurement always affects the outcome. I mean, unless, of course, you've got the, the zero qubit, which we can represent as one times the zero qubit plus zero times the, uh, the one qubit, in which case the probability you get a zero, of course, is one squared, which is one. The probability you get a, a, a one is zero. So, um, no, so the, the measurement I mean, always affects the outcome. But here, um, what's important to remember, it's... Um, a probabilistic uh, result. So if we've got this qubit in the form a times zero plus b times one, then the probability we get a, a zero is a squared, and the probability we get one is b squared. And so 
at first sight, this doesn't seem to be a useful property. And it's certainly not uh, in popular descriptions. We say that uh, we often see that um, qubits are both zero and one at the same time. But things are, are certainly more complicated that when you measure these things, you either get zero or you get one. And there's a probability associated to that. You know, one of the things that you state, and I think I saw it in the promotional material for the book, is that you feel that qubits are more fundamental than bits. And that fascinated me. And perhaps you could explain this. Yeah. So um, when you're doing a computation, of course, if you're just doing a classical computation with bits, as zeros or ones, you could do exactly the same thing with the zero qubit and the one qubit. You would never put them in superposition of states. So here you can, uh, so you can do any computation, classical computation, in theory with a, a quantum computer. But you then got this uh, um, other thing that you can do with qubits. You can put them in a superposition of states, and you can also entangle them. So you've got these two other properties. Um, and it's not clear that when you first come across them, that these are useful properties. But there are two things that you can do with qubits that you can't do with bits. And so in some sense, uh, computing with qubits is a more fundamental uh, um, uh, operation. That here we, There are things you can do with them that you can't do with classical bits. Anything you can do with a classical bit, you can do with a qubit. So it's, it's more fundamental. Uh, okay, I can understand that point of view. One of the things that I liked about your book was that it gives a lot of history and relation to the uh, physics that has uh, led to the development of quantum computers. And what was the Stern-Gerlach experiment, which took place almost a century ago? Right. So this took place in 1922 in, in Frankfurt. So there were two physicists, Otto Stern and Walter Gerlach. And of course, this is the beginning of the quantum era. So people are doing experiments to uh, try and find out uh, what exactly uh, quantum physics and quantum mechanics is all about. And so um, they were trying to measure the uh, uh, spin or, or the, uh, we'll talk about the, uh, how little silver atoms are magnetized. So silver atoms act like little magnets. They have a North Pole and a South Pole. I mean, this is often described as spin, so saying spin up, spin down. We're talking about the, uh, the north and south pole of the, uh, these little magnets. And so what um, Stern and Gerlach wanted to do was to um, try and measure the axis of spins of various silver atoms going through their experiment. And so they designed an experiment to measure it in the vertical direction so that um, if the little, if the north pole was upwards, their equipment would um, send it uh, to an extreme up position. If the North Pole was downwards, it would send it to an extreme down position. And if it was the axis was in between those, it would send it somewhere between that extreme up position and extreme down position. And they were collecting these silver atoms on a, a glass plate. And you might expect that they'd end up with a line where you know, the uh, magnets that were in their axes aligned vertically would be at one of the extreme points, and if the axis was aligned horizontally, it would be halfway between them. But what they found was something quite surprising. What they found was that whenever they measured um, the uh, direction of this magnet, it was always aligned vertically. Either the North Pole was upwards or the North Pole was downwards. It was never right or left. It was always up or down. And so it was a quite a surprising result. Um, that led to something that you call a three consecutive spins experiment. What's that and what can we learn from it? Yeah. So, I mean, so when you measure then, the, so what Stern and Gullock found, that when you measure the spin in the vertical direction, or whether you, same thing as measuring the uh, uh, north-south axis in the vertical direction, it's vertically aligned. You either get spin up or spin down or north pole up uh, or north, north pole down. Um, and the question is, well, what exactly are the rules? So if you repeat the same experiment twice, so if we again measure the second time in the vertical direction, then a silver atom that has its north pole upwards after the first measurement will also have its north pole upwards after the second measurement. So 
we have some consistency, some repeatability. Um, so that's one thing. So here, um, it's not just a random result each time. Um, we can repeat experiments and get the same results. Then, and what they did was they measured um, the spin in the vertical direction and then in the horizontal direction. And what they found was that half of the um, silver atoms that had their north poles upwards, when they measured in the horizontal direction, had their north poles in the uh, right direction and half in the left direction. So then again, everything was in now in the right left direction. Um, and the three spins experiment is to again now measure in the vertical direction. So if you measure first and the spin is upwards or north poles upwards, then you measure again and the spin is now right in the right direction. What happens if you measure again in the first uh, in the vertical direction? You would get north, which you did originally, and the answer is you don't. So this is lost all memory about that first measurement. And so these experiments um, were you know, they were just describing what goes on physically, and then of course you have to try and come up with some um, simple mathematical model that describes what's going on. Um. One of the things that I liked was, as I said, I like the fact that uh, you give the history and connection to physics and a lot of this stuff. And my impression when I read about the polarized filters experiment, it's basically the three consecutive spins experiment with polarized filters, which is a lot e more intuitive to see than the spins, because we can see what happens when we turn polarized, you know, with the polarized filters. So that's exactly it. Yeah, so it is. I just think that the mathematics, though, becomes a little bit easier when you're talking about, um, uh, I think the mathematics is, is a little bit easier to see for the spins than for the polarized filter. But you're right, it's exactly the same experiment, two different versions of the same experiment. Okay, now we come to what is absolutely one of the most perplexing aspects of quantum mechanics. What is entanglement? I'll bet you've been okay, asked so, this before. Okay, so... Um, suppose that we uh, have a, uh, a cube. You have a qubit. I have a qubit. Uh, and suppose it's in a mixture of the zero uh, qubit and the one qubit in such a way that um, when I measure my qubit, I get zero with probability half or one with probability half. And the same thing for you. you, you when you measure your qubit, you're going to get zero with probability half, one with a, uh, probability one half. Okay, so if our qubits are entangled then what happens is that when you measure your qubit, you might get zero with probability one half. Then when I measure my qubit, I get zero. Uh, if you get zero, I get zero. If you get one, I get one. Our results are correlated. So that um, um, whoever makes their, so suppose you make your uh, measurement before I make my measurement, you could get either zero or one. As soon as you measure it, say you get zero then we know that when I'm going to measure my qubit, I'm also going to get zero. So the first measurement affects the state of the, uh, the other qubit. It's, it's a most remarkable result. It is fascinating. Um, who are Alice, Bob, and Eve? What are they doing, and how does it relate to quantum computing? Okay, so Alice, Bob, and Eve uh, uh, come from cryptography, uh, and um, Alice and Bob want to communicate with each other and they're trying to do it um, um, securely. They don't want to be intercepted. So perhaps they're exchanging financial information or something like that. And um, Eve is a, an interloper. She's trying to listen in and trying to detect what's going on. Um, and so and there are various methods of, encrypt, of encryption um, well, we use all the time. So, so for instance, we do um, you know, online banking. We're encrypting uh, what we're doing on our computer and what the bank's computer is. We're hoping that uh, you know, Eve or anyone else is not intercepting. And so quantum computing gives us various ways of um, designing um, encryption programs. So one way is to um, uh, use what's called a key. So suppose that you and I were going to uh, communicate using a, a secure channel, we're going to design some sort of encryption method. 
and suppose it's going to be based on um, uh, a long number, and a lot of encryption methods are in based on long numbers. So we can, you have this long number, I have this long number. It's the same number. It's a shared key, and we're going to encrypt and decrypt using this long number. Well, the first thing we've got to do is somehow get this long number so we both have it and uh, nobody intercepted it as we were trying to share this key. So this is called uh, key distribution. And we can do this using entangled particles. So um, the basic idea here is that um, and this idea that you know, when you measure your, your qubit and I measure my qubit, if they're entangled, we've got this correlation between the results. Um, and we can also do this in, in a very clever way that um, detects whether Eve is intercepting. Because if Eve intercepts our qubits, then she's going to have to make a measurement. And when she makes a measurement, our qubits become disentangled. And there are clever ways of telling whether um, qubits are entangled or, or not. What is interference and how does it affect quantum computing? Okay, so um, interference, the simplest example of interference would be if you have a qubit that's in the state A0 plus B1, A times the zero qubit plus B times the one qubit, then you remember that A squared plus B squared had to equal one. Well, if we just change the sign of A and look at minus A times zero plus B times one, then that also satisfies minus A squared plus B squared will also equal one. Um, so we might have two qubits, one A plus A times the zero qubit plus B times one, and one minus A times the zero qubit plus B times one. And if we have a way of adding those, then the A and the minus A will cancel and we'll get rid of the um, zero qubit. Uh, um, we'll just be left with a one qubit. And this is really uh, analogous to um, interference and waves. That if you uh, drop a stone in a, a lake and you see these ripples expanding outwards, if I would drop a stone in the lake as well, and the ripples expand outwards, and then here they might interfere. So my ripples might interfere with your ripples, um, and the waves either add constructively. So here, I mean, the amplitudes, uh, if my wave is uh, um, up in the air and your wave is up in the air, these amplitudes add. And if they could also act destructively and cancel one another out. And so you see these interference patterns. Uh, and that's really related to this idea of um, cancelling bits out in, in quantum computations. And I, mean, I like to think of it in terms of one thing we're familiar with is sort of noise cancelling uh, headphones, where we're getting this sort of noise coming in and the music we're trying to listen to and the noise cancelling headphones sort of cancel out the noise uh, and just leave the music we're trying to listen to. And that's what we're trying to do with quantum computations. That there's, there's the bit of the computation that we really don't want, we're really sort of noise, uh, and so we could try and use um, interference to cancel that bit out and amplify the bit that we're really interested in. So that's the sort of, um, well, it's a vague idea of what we're doing with quantum computations. Whenever I read about quantum computing, I always read about the difficulty that one has of manufacturing computers with two, three, five qubits, etc. So what is required to produce real-world useful qubits? Well, so, so here, I, I'm not a, physic, a physicist, so uh, producing uh, these uh, yeah, actual quantum computers is, is difficult. So I mean, they're doing things like um, they've got ions trapped in lattices. Um, uh, for quantum uh, communication, and we can use um, polarized photons. But uh, one of the real problems is that um, with qubits, of course, whatever, however you uh, uh, encode them, whether in terms of little particles or, or photons, is that they tend to interact with the rest of the universe. You get a, um, some sort of electromagnetic wave coming towards your computer and it interacts with the qubit. It jumps to something else. So from my perspective, the, the, one of the most interesting results uh, was uh, something that Peter Shaw did in, in the 1990s, and that was he showed that you could error correct. 
and that um, and this is one of the things that led to people thinking, well, actually, perhaps you could actually build quantum computers. And so here, the idea is that um, uh, you know that your errors will creep into your quantum computation because things are going to happen. And what you want to do is you want to try and correct errors. So if your qubits flipped from zero to one or something, you want to be able to correct that. And of course, what you're not allowed to do is you're not allowed to make a measurement of your qubit. As soon as you measure your qubit, it's going to jump to either zero or one. And so it's a stunning result that here you can actually detect whether a mistake has been made, there's an error crept in, and you can correct it. And all the time, you never make a measurement of the qubit. It's just, uh, it's one of these things that when you first hear about it, it just sounds impossible. But then you look at the mathematics and say, well, that's really clever. You know, one of the things that I enjoyed about your book is that you learn a lot about quantum mechanics en passant. I realize that your focus is quantum computing, but it's a great book to read for people who want also an introduction to some of the interesting ideas in quantum mechanics. And I'd like to touch on that for a little bit. Um, What is the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics? Yeah, so um, actually, so let me just say, I, I really agree with you. I think that quantum computing is the ideal way to get into quantum mechanics. But I mean, a lot of people, you know, the pioneers of quantum computing um, came from quantum mechanics. And so, I mean, they tend to use a lot of uh, mathematics. I mean, they're you know, very used to using sophisticated mathematics. But I think the direction in the future should go the other way, that you should learn quantum computing first and then quantum mechanics, because you get all these ideas in a, in a very elementary form. That's a very uh, anyway. intriguing idea. Uh, so anyway, the Copenhagen interpretation. Um, so um, Niels Bohr um, lived in Copenhagen. He had an institute there. And um, um, Heisenberg was also there for some time. And the Copenhagen interpretation is the interpretation I've been describing that here you get this sudden jumping as soon as you make a measurement. Um, and, of course, this is something that um, Einstein, uh, you know, did not like. I mean, he didn't like, uh, he didn't like this jumping. He didn't feel that um, in physics you should have these, these probabilities coming in. But, uh, uh, and he also didn't like the idea of entanglement, uh, you know, this, which he called this spooky action at a distance. You know, there were two, um, we're leading to what I considered one of the most fascinating results of the 20th century, but perhaps you could briefly describe what local realism and hidden variables are. Yeah, so um, local realism uh, is, and again, this is something that Einstein, I mean, I think really uh, believed in. So if we go, actually go back to uh, gravitation and look at um, uh what um, Newton did with gravitation. So he came up with uh, an, an equation that told you the force on, on two masses. But so he, for instance, it tells you on why the earth revolves around the sun, but he didn't explain the mechanism behind it. I mean, you've got the mathematics, you know what the forces are, but how does it work? How does the sun uh, actually affect the earth? And um, so, um, uh, you know, if you're going to do something that affects me, then there should be something, some sort of connection that connects us somehow. There should be some sort of mechanism that does it. And so um, what Einstein did, of course, with his general theory of relativity, and he came up with this description of um, space-time and space-time uh, um, distorting. And so he changed it uh, from this idea of this action at a distance to local realism, the Earth moves the way it does move because the sun has distorted the space-time near us. And so we, the Earth is moving uh, according to the space-time that surrounds the Earth. Uh, and um, so that's what local realism it, um, is. And this is to do with um, entanglement and this idea that... Um, when you measure, we've got, we've got two entangled qubits, and you measure your qubit, and my qubit immediately jumps to a new state. And this is, according to the Copenhagen interpretation, this is instantaneous. Uh, and 
I mean, Einstein you know, really didn't like this. I mean, he felt that there ought to be some other uh, um, uh, you know, deeper theory some, um, uh, that explains it, and that you know, my qubit couldn't just jump unless something acting in its environs affected it. So, the, so that's uh, local realism. And hidden variables is the idea that there's a deeper theory. So here, uh, for example, in, you know, we toss a coin, and we think of tossing a coin in some sense as being random. We, when we talk about random experiments, we're always talking about tossing coins. But in physics, I mean, a coin toss is not a random thing. And we feel that if we could... Um, it's sort of sensitive dependence on initial conditions, but if we knew the conditions precisely, if we knew the exact pressure of my uh, thumb on the coin, we knew the viscosity of the air and so on, if we knew all these conditions, we'd be able to predict, you know, with certainty, whether it's going to land up heads or tails. It's just that we don't know all these extra variables. Uh, and so the hidden variable thing with quantum mechanics is uh, saying, well, perhaps there are, you know, there's a deeper theory with more variables. And if we knew these, then this, uh, this probabilistic uh, aspect of quantum mechanics would disappear. I mean, all the experiments show that's not the case, that uh, you cannot get rid of this randomness. It's just a natural part of uh, quantum mechanics. Was that the conclusion that John Bell reached in the 60s? Yes. Yeah, so, so he came up with a, a really remarkable experiment. Uh, and, and it's just a pity that uh, um, Einstein and Bohr weren't alive when this first experiment was done. So Einstein and Bohr were uh, they, all through the 20s and 30s. They were arguing backwards and forwards. I mean, Bohr you know, believed in this Heisenberg, uh, in this Copenhagen interpretation of measurements uh, cause states to jump. But Einstein never, never bought into this. And so they were arguing backwards and forwards. And it wasn't clear that you could tell, uh, test whether one was right and one was wrong. I mean, uh, we certainly know that uh, the Copenhagen interpretation gives the right results, but maybe there's some deeper theory. And Bell came up with this really clever experiment to tell, to distinguish these, to tell whether um, you know there could be local realists and hidden variables, or, or whether this Copenhagen interpretation. Uh, is correct, and so it, it's a, it requires sort of again entanglement and a series of measurements, and it's sort of since been done several times, and uh, the results are always uh, um, in favour of the Copenhagen interpretation, always in favour of this inherent randomness and you know this, uh, measurements making states jump. You know, Chris, we've just spent a lot of time on quantum. And now let's get to computing. What is the logical operation? A, a logical operation. So, um, there. So, logic includes things like and or not. So, when you learn logic, you have logic tables. So, uh, so we have things like P and Q, where P and Q represent statements that could have, have truth value. They're either true or they're false. And so, these connectives like and. Uh, so here, P and Q, that will be true only in the case when both P and Q are true. And you know, if P is true but Q is false, or Q is false but P is true, or, or uh, they're both false, then P and Q will be false. So you get these truth tables. Um, and so we can connect up uh, 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 more complicated statements using and, or, nots, and other um, uh, connectives like this and they're of course connected to um, what's called Boolean algebra instead of using true and false we can use the uh, the numbers 0 and 1 and so we're getting back to bits now and then um, I'd say so if we have uh, the and gate so here we now put zero, zero some two, two things in two inputs into the and gate um, they could either be zero zero, in which case uh, it's like having false false, and so here the output would be false, or in this case the output would be zero. And again, with the AND gate, the only way you're going to get one as an output is if you put one and one as input. And so, um, so these logic gates act 
very much like, um, uh, well, connectives in, in logic. Are gates, uh, are gates logical uh, constructs or are they physical things such as circuits that you see in computers? So, so, so I mean, well, they're both. So they're, they're constructs, but no, you can actually construct gates. And so here um, you actually string a lot of gates together in what's called a circuit. So here you have wires coming in um, and, you know, they connect to, to uh, a gate and then you get a wire coming out of the gate. So here, um, uh, I mean, they're mainly used for thinking about uh, computation. Um, but no, you can actually build gates. Okay, that's uh, what um, I wanted to get at, whether or not they were logical constructs, whether or not they could be... Inv- so they're logical constructs that can be realized as circuits. Yes. So, so yes. So, so circuit, was, circuit has a, a certain meaning in, in uh, computer science. So circuit is. Sorry. Yeah. So circuits. I mean, are they're not for, in, in computer science? They're not sort of circuitous things. They're, they're sort of linear things. They go from left to right. And here you input. They have wires. The start on the left, then they go through a series of uh, gates, uh, the, and then output is again wires. And so they're read from left to right, and the from the left you put it in the input of zeros and ones. They go through these logic gates, and output is a set of zeros and ones. Okay, now we come to where I started learning about stuff in your book. What is a universal gate? Well, so in for logical connectives, we have things like and or not and so the corresponding gates uh, 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 the uh, and the question is you could come up with your own gate it would just be a thing that has a series of zeros and ones or a series of wires going into it and a series of wires coming out and um, a rule that tells me what sort of combination of zeros and ones going in gives me what sort of combination of zeros and ones coming out you can just invent any infinite number of, of gates but the question is is there a fundamental gate which you can just wire up uh, and just use this one gate over and over again and just wire it up and, and get the same result as any other gate? Uh, um, the surprising answer is that there is. Uh, oh, so one such universal gate is called the NAND gate, which stands for not AND. Uh, and so here it's like the AND gate, with them, but negated. So here the only way you can get a, a one out of a, NAND gate. So a NAND gate has two inputs and one output. The only way you can get a one out of a NAND gate is by inputting two zeros. Or in the other other three cases, you get a zero coming out as output. And it's sort of a really surprising result that you can wire up. Um, you just all you need to construct a circuit are a whole bunch of NAND gates. You can wire them up uh, uh, to obtain any other circuit you like. Hey, that's very interesting. And as I say, we're starting to learn about things that I was starting to learn about when I read your book. What is fan out? Okay, so, um, okay, so here, this is something that um, is important when we come to talk, start talking about quantum computing. So, uh, in classical computing, we always say that you know, NAND is a universal gate. But what should be pointed out is that you also have to use this other operation called fan out and what that is is that uh, when you have a wire you're allowed to sort of solder another wire to it and to split the signal so that here um you know you might have just uh, one wire coming in and then you solder this other wire to it so now you've got two wires and it splits the incoming signal so here if you had a, a one coming down it now you have two ones going along these separate wires or if you had zero coming in now you have two zeros going along these separate wires so it's called fan out. Um, it's really splitting the signal. And it, it could be just called copying the signal. You're making another copy of the signal. So here, you need to be able to use that uh, in addition to NAND gates to, uh, uh, to construct any circuit whatsoever. So you need that fundamental operation. And why it's important is that you cannot do that with um, uh, in quantum computing. So here, you cannot copy an arbitrary qubit and get end up with two qubits that are identical so and that's called the no cloning theorem and really it means that you can't do this uh fan out operation 
for arbitrary qubits. Okay, what is a reversible gate and why is it needed for quantum computing? Okay, so um, reversible gates are ones that you can uh, look at the output from the gate and then tell you what the input was. So if we look at the AND gate, for instance, and we get uh, we look at the output and we're told the output is zero, and we don't know what the input is. I mean, it could be uh, it could be zero zero, or it could be zero one, or it could be one zero. And the only thing it rules out it couldn't be one one. So if we look at the output, we can't tell what the input is. With a reversible gate, um, if you've got the output, then you can tell what the input uh, must have been. Um, and so uh, in quantum computing, all the gates are, are reversible. And they, so if you're given any output from a, a quantum gate, you know what the input must have been. And so in particular, if you've got two wires coming into a gate, you must have two wires leaving a gate. And this relates to, to physics and uh, the laws of physics. And the laws of physics are, are reversible. And um, so in, in quantum computing, all of these computations are reversible. Um, you've sort of touched on this, but what is the real? What is the difference between a quantum gate and a classical gate? Is it that a quantum gate must be reversible and a classical gate need not be? So, um, it's certainly that's certainly true. Quantum gates must be reversible. Classical gates need not be. Of course, I mean quantum gates op uh, operate on um, uh, qubits, of course, and, and Classical gates just operate on, on bits. But um, quantum gate is not just that it's reversible. In some sense, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's doing something like rotating or, or reflecting. It's, it's preserving uh, uh, other properties. So it, it's, um, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's very much like sort of rotating your, your coordinates through 45 degrees, that sort of thing. Uh, uh, you're making sort of a substitution. Okay, that's... Uh, and, of course, actually one thing that really should be stressed, that as qubits go through a gate, and no measurements are being made. So there are no, there's no jumping as you go through the gates. The only jumping is right at the very end of the computation when you, when you measure your qubits. Okay, you mentioned that the NAND gate was a universal gate for a classical computer. Um, you then discuss whether or not you can find a finite set of quantum gates that are universal for quantum computing. Why is this important, and can you do it? So, well, um, of course, it's just, well, it's mathematically sort of interesting idea. You, know, you can do this for classical computing. Can you do it for quantum computing? Uh, and the answer is, um, we know there isn't, well, there's a theoretical answer. The theoretical answer is no, uh, um, there isn't a universal quantum gate. Uh, and that really just hinges on the fact that um, we have uh, so many different types of qubits. So here, remember, uh, if I look at a qubit, it can be any mixture of zero and one, and there are infinitely many of them. And so uh, you know, it's hard to get an infinitely many, thing, uh, many things out of just a finite number of gates. So um, that's essentially the argument why there is no universal quantum uh, gate or, or finite collection of quantum gates. But in practice, um, uh, there are a finite number of gates that are used, and uh, all computations that have done, been done so far have used this relatively few number of gates. So in practice, uh, uh, um, we're, only, we're only, only using a few quantum gates. Um, you discussed some other things which I found extremely interesting, and I'm going to get to them. One was super dense coding. What is that? Yeah, so this is a way. Um, so here, I want to send to you two bits of information, and I'm going to do this by sending you just one qubit. And of course, first, this sounds. Uh, um, you so could send me a to do. Pardon? You could send me a vector. Right, right. So I could send you a vector, and you're going to make a measurement. Now, of course, when you make a measurement, right, it's just going to jump to zero or one. So, uh, um, uh, but I want to send you two qubits. Uh, so I want to send you either, I'm sorry, I want to send you two bits. So I want to send you either zero, 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 one, one, zero, or one, one. 
but I'm going to do it just by sending you one qubit. And you, of course, you can only get uh, 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 one measurement from this qubit. And so um, the way that uh, we do this I mean, it involves um, uh, entanglement. And so we also, so I should also say that we have a pair of entangled qubits we just happen to have. And so this, there's a way of doing this that it uses our entangled qubits and this qubit I'm sending you to uh, um, send you two bits of information. You, after you receive my qubit, you measure your qubit and this qubit you just received. And here you'll read off the information I was trying to send you. You'll read off 0, 0, 0, 1, 1, 0, or 1, 1. Okay, we then hit an idea which I loved called quantum teleportation. Could you explain that, please? Yeah, so, so this is the idea of um, sending a qubit. Uh, and this has actually been done. So a, a Chinese research team has actually sent a qubit from Earth to a satellite in, in uh, low Earth. Low Earth I think Earth. I saw that. Is that within the last few years? Yeah, so I've, yeah. Yeah, two or three years ago they did this. So it's a stunning result. So the idea is that here I want to send you a qubit. Um, and again, we have um, uh, a, a pair of entangled particles. And then somebody gives me a qubit, and I don't know what state this qubit's in. I cannot know what state this qubit's in, um, because if I make any measurement of it, it's going to jump. But I want to send you that qubit, or, or, or I want you to have that qubit. And so what I do is, and this is very clever, I entangle that qubit with my qubit that's entangled with your qubit, and then I make a measurement of my two qubits that I've got in my possession, and that sends your qubit almost into uh, the state that I'm trying to send to you. This, this qubit that was given to me is almost in the right state. Um, in fact, it's one of four possibilities. Uh, uh, um, and the four possibilities we can work out depending on the measurement I got from measuring my two qubits. So here, then I send you the results of my two measurements. And uh, with those, you can send your qubit through um, the appropriate gate, and you'll end up with um, a qubit that was in the state uh, of the original qubit that was handed to me. And what's really interesting here is that I, mean, I never knew what the state of the uh, this qubit was, and you never knew what the state of that qubit was, but you ended up with this qubit in that state. Uh, that's re it, really fascinating. And one of the things also that um, uh, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I'm in my 70s, and uh, when I started studying mathematics, quanta, uh, computer science was sort of in its infancy. There had been Turing and some results that had been, you know, had been done during the 30s and 40s. But all of a sudden, com the mathematics of computing exploded sometime in the last half of the, of the 20th century. And there were some fascinating results. And one of them is, I, as I'm sure you know, it's one of the clay millennium problems involving whether or not P and NP are the same class. And perhaps you could explain what the complexity classes P and NP are. Yeah. So, well, first of all, P stands for polynomial time. NP stands for non-deterministic polynomial time, which is a, a, a little bit more complicated. But in practice, what it means is that uh, we're talking about um, the, the amount of time taken to solve a problem um, in terms of the size of the problem. So if I ask you to um, factor 15, then you can do that fairly quickly. I can do that uh, very we... quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but if I were to give you um, a, a 10-digit number and ask you to factor that, that would take a lot more time. I'll be here for a while. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. And so, so the, the time grows and... In practice, we found that the time grows sort of exponentially, certainly not uh, polynomially. On the other hand, if I give you two five-digit figures and ask you to multiply them together, um, that, it takes more time than multiplying two two-digit numbers together, but not that much more time. You can, you can do that fairly quickly. And so factorization is a really important problem. And so it, we think that... To factor uh, a product of two primes, 
is something that is not, uh, we can't do that in polynomial time. We think, we, we, nobody's got a proof of that, but we think we can't do that in polynomial time. That as the, uh, the size of the problem grows, the difficulty seems to grow uh, exponentially. On the other hand, if you're given the answer, you're given the answer and say, well, actually, that 10-digit number, I think it's the product of this number and that number, you can check the answer fairly easily. So checking the answer, um, uh, you can probably do in polynomial time. And so that's the idea. So non, uh, non-deterministic non polynomial time, NP, are really problems that you can check the answer in polynomial time. And P are polyno uh, questions that um, you can solve in polynomial time. So we think factorizing uh, you know, a, a big, long, uh, a large number, we think that's not in P. We don't think we can uh, factor that in polynomial time. On the other hand, we can certainly, um, uh, if somebody tells us what the answer is, we can certainly check that answer is correct in polynomial time. So we think factorization is something that belongs to NP, but not to P. And of course, the big question is, well, are they really different uh, complexity classes? Is there really anything that separates P and NP? Is there any problem that we can definitely prove? Uh, you can't uh, solve it in polynomial time, but you can check the answers correct in polynomial time. And the answer is nobody's found one. I, mean, every, I think most people believe that P and NP are different, uh, uh, are different classes, that there will be you know, some problem, there must be some problem you can prove uh, you can't solve in polynomial time, but you can check the answers correct in polynomial time. It just seems such a, uh, an obvious thing, but nobody's been able to prove it. And as you say, it's one of the millennium problems. That if you can come up with a proof of this, then um, uh, or, or a disproof of it, uh, you can uh, you'll you'll win a million dollars. So it's a it's a it's a great problem. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating problem. Um, I'd like to conclude the interview with your description of a couple of fascinating algorithms with which I was not familiar. What is Deutsch's algorithm, and what did it prove? Okay, so Deutsch's algorithm was in in he proved this in 1985, and this was the first algorithm to show that um, you could do something faster with a quantum computer than you could do classically. And so the algorithm and the problem um, are really uh, not that important. It's a, it's a very, um, uh, the problem was constructed just to prove that a quantum computer could solve it more quickly than a classical computer. So it's not actually a practical problem, but it, it was the first time that uh, it had been shown that quantum computers could do things faster than classical uh, computers. So it was, it was an important result. Sort of remind me of uh, Gerdel's proof on, uh, where he originally constructed an undecidable proposition, which nobody cared about, but he did show that it was an undecidable proposition. Right, right. Exactly. That's exactly. Yeah. So, uh, um, yeah. Uh, what is Grover's algorithm and to which problems does it apply? So Grover's algorithm is, um, again, it's another fascinating algorithm. So, so let me give you an example. Suppose that um, we've got four playing cards um, face down uh, in, in front of you. And one of, the, you know, one of them is the queen of hearts. And so all you're allowed to do is um, turn over a card and you've got to try and find the queen of hearts. So, uh, um, so you turn over the first card, and there's probability that you might find Queen of Hearts in your first go, and the probability is right one quarter. But I mean, usually you're going to need to take another go, so you might turn over the second card, uh, and that may or may not be the Queen of Hearts. If you find it, you found it, that's good. If you don't find it, then you're going to have to turn over a third card. And once you've turned over the third card, then you know where the Queen of Hearts must be. So on average, um, it takes uh, two and a quarter tries two and a quarter turns to find the, the queen of hearts so that's that's classically uh grover's algorithm and again this is something that you you just when you first see it, you don't believe it's possible but here grover's algorithm does this with just one question it, you just just you just uh apply the function once uh, and so you find the queen of hearts with 
in the first go. So it's a remarkable result. Um, the actual algorithm um, is described um, as um, searching data, or it's like inverse searching, given a phone number, searching through a, a phone book to find the address. Um, it's, it's, I don't know that it is particularly applicable um, in, for, for, for that, in that um, there are other search algorithms, classical search algorithms that are fairly efficient. And certainly if there's any structure to the, your data set, then uh, you can probably find a more efficient way of doing it than using, using Grover's algorithm. I think Grover's algorithm is more important for, again, the idea, you know, the trick there that you could probably build into other algorithms. So a lot of these first algorithms, we're seeing, you know, what made this work? And let's use this idea uh, in the future in other algorithms that are going to be more useful. Well, one of the things that I've learned about science and mathematics over the course of my lifetime is that you never say, this is not going to be useful. Because <laughs> you, just, <laughs> you just never know. Um, Chris, what do you see as the potential of quantum computing, say, within the next few decades? Um, so well, I think it's very dangerous to predict uh, uh, you know, what's going to happen in, uh, in, in the distant future. But in the near future, um, uh, I think probably the most exciting areas are going to be in terms of chemistry. So chemistry at its most fundamental level is a, a quantum, pheno- you know, involves quantum phenomena. And it makes a lot of sense to simulate this on quantum computers. So I think there's going to be lots of applications to chemistry. But uh, the application I'm, you know, I'm an educator that I'm more interested in is um, us all being able to play with quantum computers. And um, Google, not Google, I mean, IBM, IBM has actually put a little five qubit quantum computer uh, in the cloud. Anyone can play with it. Uh, and so I mean, anyone can play with it for free. Um, and I think this is very exciting. So I think we're now getting to the stage where anyone can play with a quantum computer. And I'm hoping that everyone can learn a little bit about quantum computing. So I think we're getting to the stage where um, you know, we're going to see many more of us just, just playing around with quantum computing. I mean, I think that really it, it could become part of the, the high school curriculum. Uh, Chris, this has been just fascinating stuff. Um, I'd like to know if you have any ongoing projects that might interest our listeners and how our listeners can get in touch with you. Yeah, so um, I'm just sort of uh, thinking about various things. So I've got no project that's uh, (laughs) really gone very far at the moment. Well, get in touch with me when you got one or when you write a book. (laughs) Okay. All right. Thank you. So, so the way to get hold of me is by email. Uh, and that my university email address is cbernhardt at fairfield.edu. Chris, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank, thank you. I enjoyed it.